0: God alone. Good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors and elders. And um, Ryan, on the way back from saying announcements, she came over to me and sheepishly whispered, "She forgot one." Um, So, at the her price is ridicule. So afterward, I want you to look at her and go. But uh, no, I'm sorry, Ryan. That was uh, so. We uh, what was forgotten was after church, after second service, we're going to be having a potluck here together. Uh, Just to be able to, we're going to talk about today the importance of doing community together as we follow Jesus. So that's one way, just to connect with some people. uh, If you're new, if you've been here for a while, just deepen those relationships as we go out with the gospel this week. So I would invite you, uh, you've got a perfect window between the end of this service and 12.30, 12.15 for our potluck, to go Safeway, uh, grab 16, 17 rotisserie chickens, and come back, and we'll uh, we'll party. Uh, So... uh, If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning, finishing up John chapter 1. We've been walking through this gospel together, uh, but I want to start, uh, first of all, uh, obviously, talking about show and tell. Uh, Does anybody remember uh, growing up, or maybe you're still in school, uh, Things. shout out a couple things that you guys brought to show and tell back in the day. Your baby brother. Hey, there he is. Your taller baby brother. You still are showing and telling. Uh, All right, what else? The family, they let you? Yeah. Man, so much better times. What Baby else? Bangers. What's that? Baby pigs. Baby pigs. Mom grew up on a dairy farm. So, <laughs> weirdos. Anything else? You're like, no, why would I tell you? You're going to mock me in front of everybody. <laughs> All right, that's enough. A um, few standouts from the World Wide Web. Uh, somebody brought grandma's gallstones, oh. a deer heart, uh, this was mom's, so, mom's only set of car keys. Sit on that. Uh, Somebody, Two kids brought, one brought their prosthetic eye and the other one their prosthetic arm and then passed it around in class. That's fun. Um, For a personal timeline project, somebody brought their own umbilical cord and the pregnancy test that had announced them. So lots of hand sanitizer at these events. And then somebody brought daddy's special water bottle, which was actually a flask. And then for 100's day, uh, a young one brought their 99-year-old great-grandmother and their one-year-old little brother. That's what I thought you'd say. So show and tell was all about finding something that you found valuable that you wanted to tell or show the whole class um, about. And, and really, this is how our church is to be built, how our mission is to be accomplished, that we are shown the person of Jesus as he really is in the word of God, and that by seeing him in his supreme value by faith, we then tell the world as his witnesses what we've been shown. And this morning, as we we look at John's gospel, we we. See, this is how it begins. Remember, last week, John the Baptist was the first witness that was sent to show the world, tell the world who this Jesus was. And and then this morning, at the back half of chapter one, we see a ripple effect. Uh, John is showing uh, his, his fellow Jews who Jesus is, and then they start to tell others and bring others alongside. And the light begins to shine brighter and brighter in a dark world. And what I want us to consider this morning as we read this passage is, man, have... Have I seen, am I seeing Jesus as he really, truly is revealed in this gospel? Uh, or am I making up my own version of him, a warped version of him that I'm following and trusting in? And then from that, am I on a mission telling the people around me about this Jesus that I've seen? So uh, two big things we want to look at in this passage. First is the first steps. So if have your Bibles, John chapter 1. Again, the verses from John won't be on the screen Want us in our copies of the Word. Uh, the first thing we're going to see is a discipleship involves curiosity. Two things we'll see it involves. The first one is curiosity. So John 1, we're starting in verse 35. The next day, so the, we this, the day before it was when John the Baptist said, I saw Jesus, Spirit of God descending on him. This is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is the day after that. The next day, verse 35, John was standing with his two disciples... And so here he is standing with two of his disciples, and it says, verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, that's what he said yesterday when Jesus walked by. So every time he sees Jesus, he says, look, the Lamb of God. I don't know if it's like those, you know, automatic doors at Walmart where every time you walk by, even if you're, if he you just, like, Jesus bends down to tie his shoes, pops back up. Look, there, the Lamb of God is back. He might have got old. I don't know, but he keeps pointing him out. And then I love verse 37, verse um, 37. It says, the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. So here's Jesus walking by. His disciples are standing with him. Jesus passes and they're just, I have decided to follow. They just immediately have, see lamb, will follow, right? They just take off after Jesus. And then verse 38 says, when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he asked them, what are you looking for? Jesus looks over his shoulders and he sees these two guys keep following him, right? And I would be like, can I help you? Because you're creeping me out, right? One of the many reasons, I'm not the, the Messiah. Um, he says, why are you following me? And, and in this gospel, what we're going to see over and over again, when, it, when the term follow Jesus... Um, It it means to follow him as a disciple would follow a rabbi or present day language, a student with a teacher or maybe more of an apprentice. Now, at the time, this was a common practice that you would choose a a rabbi or a teacher to follow. So them beginning to follow him wasn't maybe as creepy or or off brand as as maybe what we would experience today. And I think here, John means literally, I mean, they literally are following him. But it's also the first steps of a potential discipleship with Jesus. Now, these are, it says here, these were disciples of John, right? John the Baptist, disciples. But they're not just ditching John for a shinier, newer rabbi that passes by. Remember, John said last week, this is why I'm here, to point people to Jesus. That's the Lamb of God to follow. That's the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world, not me. So this is what John would hope for his own disciples. Verse 38 uh, continues, he says, what are you looking for? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, this passage stresses me out because nobody's answering each other's questions. John says, Jesus says, what are you, what are you after? And they go, where are you staying? Um, but why, why wh- what, what with these questions? Um, we see in John's gospel, Jesus always has a way to cut through to the, to the, the person that he's talking to, to their deepest motive and desire. Do you have friends like that? That can be really annoying. What are you really after, Justin? None yet, okay? So just, he says, what are you looking for? And and I think, really, another way to phrase that would be, what do you really want? What are you really after? And I think this question works on two levels. I mean, I think he's literally asking, why are you following me down the road? But then I think he's also, uh, D.A. Carson says that Jesus uh, is often shown by John in his gospel to confront people who who are asking questions, who are taking that initial step, and going, who do you think I am? Why are you following me? What are you really after here? Examining the heart. And they ask, they, the Socratic method, they ask, answer his question with a question. They say, where are you staying? Now, it doesn't seem to answer the question, um, but I think perhaps this is their way of saying, man, this is a big question to answer, Jesus. And can we, can we sit down and have lunch? Where are you staying? Where's your hotel? Let's, let's sit down. And I think really showing, I think the implication being, what we want is you. We want to know you. John identified you as the Lamb of God who are you? This is what we want. And I love this, verse 39, he says, come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was four in the afternoon. How incredible to get to spend the day with the person of Jesus. And I wish, like, I, what were they doing? You know, were they playing catchphrase? He'd be a really annoying person to play catchphrase with. I know the answer. Um, I, I wish we had more here. I think these white spaces in our Bibles, man, that's where so much of the good stuff happens. One of the things that I've loved about the the, the show, The Chosen, is just kind of helps us imaginatively flesh some of that out. But what we see here in the first steps of discipleship is is the, the apprentice, the disciple who was following the rabbi, they were learning from the rabbi and they were becoming like the rabbi and we'll see this process in the gospel of john they these two are yet to be full-on disciples these are the baby steps the first steps of what would become a three-year journey for them but what we see the seeds of here is two things first of all discipleship involves curiosity curiosity they're asking jesus questions they're spending time with him humbly posturing themselves as learners, as listeners with Jesus, getting to know him. And wherever you're at on, on your part of the journey with Jesus today, maybe you're not yet a believer, maybe you've been following him for a long time, the question here for us is, man, are we making time, we have the time, are we making time to get to know Jesus? Are we asking him the hard questions? And are we allowing him to ask our hearts the hard, vulnerable questions? questions. The second thing we see here is that it requires intentionality. Gravity does not take us to time with Jesus. They had to decide to follow, change the course of their day, eventually their lives. And man, we know with our busy schedules, distractions, our own sinful tendencies in heart, we're not going to just stumble into time with Jesus. Like any relationship, our apprenticeship with the Lord is going to require intentional time. So what about Starting tomorrow, what would be an intentional rhythm or discipline for you to adjust or examine to be able to intentionally step into this kind of relationship with Jesus? Discipleship in- involves curiosity. The second thing we'll see is it involves community. We, see the, we first see discipleship involves spending time with Jesus himself, but now we're going to see others being invited into the process uh, with the ones that are following Jesus. We pick it up in verse 40. Andrew... Simon Peter's brother, he clarifies, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. So we see here one of those first two that weren't named initially is Andrew. We're not told who the other one is. Some speculation it's John, the author, but we're just not told. But it says here that, that Andrew is, and he's identified uh, as Simon Peter's brother. Now, Andrew's the oldest, but he says, this is, remember Simon, Peter's, Simon Peter? This is his brother. This is how it's always like, you know, Jeremy, this is his older brother, Justin. It's super annoying. Um, But at the time that John wrote this, Peter would have been much more widely known. And even outside of Jewish and Christian circles, he was a celebrity at this point in time. So it would have made a lot more sense to say, even if you were like, this is Dustin Bieber, Justin's older brother, right? Oh, okay, I got it. You know, they would have been tracking. So we are way off topic now. So verse 41 he, so this is Andrew, first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. The other reason that, that it's mentioned that he's Simon's brother is because this is the first person he goes and tells. He goes to his brother, and, and he tells him uh, that this is, I want you to come meet this Messiah. Now, verse 42 says, uh, when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And we'll see some of the significance of that in other portions of the gospel stories. But here, Andrew, who is Peter's brother, it gives us some of his names. So Simon was his, the Hebrew version of his name. Uh, Peter, that we most probably most commonly know him as, was the Greek translation of his name. And then Cephas was the Aramaic, which is another main language spoken at the time. Uh, was the other, so those are three names, same person, three different languages. Um, Cephas and Petros, both of them mean rock, so here's one whose name would to become Rock, because uh, we won't get into it. Why? But um, then he is also known as the son of John. So another name, if he didn't already have enough names, he put all that together, he's really the original Rock Johnson, right? That's really the one that was a whisper, a shadow of the true and better. <laughs> we, um, I love here that the first thing that Andrew did was find his brother and tell him, we found the Messiah, and it reminds me of the shepherds. When they, or when they see the baby Jesus, what's the first thing they do? They go throughout the town and they say, the Lamb of God, the light of the world is here. And, and what a precedent that when people see and by faith savor the person of Jesus as has been revealed to them. The result is to go and share him with the people you love the most. Peter was loved by his brother above all, and to love someone is to will and do their best. So he says, the best thing for my brother is to come see this Jesus that I have found. And I love D.A. Carson says, Andrew thus became the, the first in a long line of successors who have discovered that the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of friend to friend, brother to brother. And I've seen this time and time again. The best way for someone to come to know Jesus is through a a, a relationship where trust already exists. And this is one of the reasons, guys, that we are all called to be, need to be disciple-making disciples. This is two principles for us here. Number one is to reach out to your surrounding community. Because here's the deal. You have influence and relationship that I don't. You, it's easier for you to get to know your coworkers than, than, than for me. Right? I'm not showing up with a lunch pail. Hey, guys. It's also you have friends and neighbors that you can hang out with and, and relate to that I don't have access to, that I don't relate to. You have hunter buddies, that, and I don't hunt, right? Different avenues. If you're a parent or a spouse, you've been called into a unique discipleship relationship with your spouse and your children, unlike anybody else. And so the question is, are we reaching out to those that God has put into our paths? And maybe what's one step this week you can take toward that intentional reaching out? But we reach out to then bring in. We bring in to our community. The path of following Jesus we see here is not a solo hike. And just like Andrew calls his brother to follow Jesus with him, we are called to do the same. Studies show that we don't have capacity for more than... 12 or so intimate relationships, close, truly close relationships in our life, 12 for each of us. So, so that means this kind of discipleship relationship, we, can only, we only have so much time and emotional energy to go around, to get to know someone at this kind of a level. And so a healthy church is not, cannot be, where it's just the pastor or a few key leaders doing all of the discipleship. We all must be engaged in this, and especially as we grow as a church body. They say the bigger you get as a church, the harder you have to work to stay small. To be able to have these kind of relationships that Jesus has called us into. So are you engaged in those kind of relationships in community? And if you're going, what are some next steps that we could take? We'd invite you to a contact card over there and the, slip it into the offering box on the wall by the cross. Uh, my phone number, email, or in the bulletin. We'd love to talk to you about how to take some next steps in meaningful discipleship community within our body. So the first steps we see here is with an unnamed disciple and and Andrew, but then we turn to two others, Philip and Nathaniel. And with them we see an invitation and a promise, an invitation, come and see. Let's keep going with verse 43. The next day, so after he hung out with Andrew and the other unnamed disciple and then Peter, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, told Philip, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. So we see here a similar dynamic, like Andrew going to get Peter. Philip finds uh, uh, evidently his buddy, Nathanael, and tells him what he's seen. He said, this is the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about, and I love that. When we read Moses, when we read the prophets, we need to, read, to read them rightly is to realize they were ultimately pointing to Jesus. The Bible Project guys say it this way, that the Bible, the whole story from cover to cover, is a unified story. It's one tale. And all of it, every part of it, points to the person of Jesus. And so we see them pointing to them here. We're actually going to see a great example of that by Jesus himself at the end of this interaction. But you see, he says, Philip, and he goes to get Nathaniel. Now, in the other three Gospels, we're pretty sure that Nathaniel is the same person as Bartholomew. Um, we always see Philip in this gospel paired with kind of like Burton or anything when they're talking about the disciples. It's Philip and Nathaniel. In the gospels, it's Philip and Bartholomew. And very likely, Nathaniel's kind of his first name, and then Bartholomew, Bar meant son of. So likely it's Nathaniel, son of Tholomaeus, or, or whoever that would have been. And so most likely seeing the, the same disciple here. And he has... Um, he goes and gets, Nathaniel is, is reached out to, and we see him starting out by swinging a big old prejudice stick. Look at verse 46. Can anything good, he says, come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel asks. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. So this was very likely an expression at the time, uh, that, that Nazareth, even they're from Galilee too, but within Galilee, Nazareth is seen as, as backwoods and despised, looked down upon. Uh, by even people in their their same area and so he's going wait a second Jesus comes from where I I don't know about that and and there are perceptions that he has of Jesus that might be a hurdle to believing him and following him but but we hear some from Philip as well notice Philip said um, that he's the son of Joseph well yes he is in, in a sense but ultimately his true father is is from above right he also said he's from where he's from Nazareth which is true but the prophecies said that the, the Messiah King would be born in Bethlehem, which we know from the other gospel accounts, Jesus really is. So they're both battling with some perceptions about who Jesus is, to which Philip says, come and see. Which isn't that, that's the same thing Jesus said to the first two disciples back in verse 39. Come and see. Come and find out for yourself. See if your prejudice is true. See if anything can really come out of Nazareth that is good. And what's What's he going to find? The only thing that's ever, the only person who's ever lived and was truly good actually comes from Nazareth. And this isn't just a challenge to Nathaniel. I think that John here is inviting the reader of this story, you and me today, come and see who Jesus is. And notice what Jesus says about him in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He says, "Here it he comes." He says, "I see Nathaniel, and here's an Israelite that there's no deceit in." And then Nathaniel asks, "How do you know me?" So <laughs> I don't know if this is a humble. Oh, he knows a, a, a non-deceitful guy when he sees one. Jesus clearly knows me to the depth of my core. Right, hit the nail on the proverbial head there, Jesus. Verse forty-eight. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you, Jesus answered, "When you were under the fig tree, I saw you." So here's a moment, and Nathanael goes, you weren't around, how did you know I was under that fig tree? Verse 49, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathanael gets a glimpse, even with some of the omniscience here that Jesus portrays, this something good seems to have come out of Nazareth after all. And, And his response here, he says, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Nathaniel, who was a good uh, Hebrew disciple, a good student, he's riffing on Psalm chapter, psalm chapter 2. That is a messianic, a, a, a psalm about the Messiah, about the king. And it says this, I have installed my king, God says, on Zion. We sang about this earlier. My holy mountain there in Jerusalem. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And we hear that language in the gospel. So we hear Nathaniel's confession mapped on to Psalm 2 right here. Now when he says you are the son of God, the word son of, it didn't necessarily just mean a literal child. It also meant in the, in the likeness of. So when Judas is going to be referred to later in this gospel as the son of destruction, it doesn't mean his dad's name was destruction or that it was some kind of incarnate form of destruction. What is it saying? Judas is destructive. And so when we see son of, a lot of times it means in like kind. Israel was called God's son in the Old Testament because they were in a unique relationship with God as as their father and they were to image him. They were to be like God as a son to a father, as a light to the world, uh, watching them. Jesus, all we're going to see here, is is Israel's true successor though. He is the true and better Israel, God's ultimate son. And and Nathanael... He wouldn't have known all of this about Jesus. At the time, I think all he really could have known is that he is the Messiah. He's going, here's one coming from God, like God, the Son of God. But as we'll see with John, often in this gospel, I think Nathaniel's speaking better than he knew. Because what we'll come to find is that Jesus has a wholly unique relationship to God as Father. That he is God himself, as John whispered to us in the, in the prologue. The invitation here to Philip and Nathaniel and to us today is to come and see. Come and see Jesus as he really is. Because in John's gospel, Jesus is going to continue to gently but surely clarify and reorient people's expectations. We said in that day, they were subjugated by the Roman Empire. And so they're expecting this political savior to come and set them free from the bondage of Rome. But what Jesus is going to show them is, man, there is a much Worse enemy that I've come to address, and it's an internal one in your own heart, and the death that comes from that sin. So we, we pause to reflect in our own lives this morning. Do we, like Philip and Nathaniel, have some expectations or maybe assumptions about Jesus that need to be adjusted? Remember, Jesus asked his disciples, what are you really after? What do you really want? Who do you think I am? What is it that you're seeking? And sometimes I think we reduce Jesus to things like, like just a, some sprinkles, to help make our life taste better. And like Israel, we want, and it's understandable, but we want political freedom. We want political security. God bless America. Would Jesus shed his, his sprinkles on the land that I love? We, we want him to be a, a genie. That we, we just want him to give us whatever we demand. I mean, whatever we, we wish or ask for. A, a spouse, a child, success, the right answers. We want, we want Jesus to be genie on demand. Or sometimes we picture him as some aloe that's here just to take away our suffering. And that if, if I'm following Jesus, I shouldn't suffer, right? My, my family shouldn't suffer. So why are we still getting sick? Why are we still having financial struggles? I thought Jesus came to fix all that for me. Now, he, listen, he did come to make life better. He, he did come to, to fulfill our ultimate desires. And he did come to end suffering once and for all. But oftentimes it is not the way or the timing that we want or think. And I think that's where I know for me, I can get angry and even disillusioned with a Jesus that's not the Jesus that he ever claimed to be. We need to check our premises. Who is it that we're coming and seeing? So we we gotta let Jesus tell us who he truly is. And for that, we look at the last two verses of our passage this morning. A promise, a promise. You will see. Let's look at 50 and 51. Jesus responded to Nathanael after his great confession. Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You, you liked that? He says, you haven't seen anything yet. You will see greater things than this. And anytime we're looking for promises in the Bible, that word will is a key one to highlight. He says, you will see greater things than this, verse, verse 51. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will, the promise, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Huh? <laughs> what does that mean? As often, Jesus' revelation of himself is initially puzzling. Um, he says, you will see a human escalator for angels. What, what is this reference to? Well, some of us might be connecting that back. Remember Jacob's ladder in, in uh, Genesis 28. This was the original stairway to heaven. <laughs> um, Genesis 28, we, we see similar, very similar language. Joseph, Jacob has a dream. And here's his interaction with God. He, Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven, reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, just like Jesus says here, the angels will be ascending and descending. And then he, and he goes to say, "Well, what is, what is being connected here? What does that ladder connect? Well, down in verse 19 of Genesis 28, um, that God names the place through Jacob, Beth, Bethel or Beth-el. The word Beth means house, or not just a physical structure, but like a household, a dynasty. And the word el is God. So this is God's house, or God's household, his people, his dynasty, his family. And, and, but where, and, and we hear Jesus' language. Who does he say here? The angels are ascending and descending on. What's the ladder? Look at 51. The angels of God ascending and descending on what? On the Son of Man. He says, I am the ladder. And we, what do we hear in, in a couple chapters from now, John 14, he says, I go to prepare a place in my father's house, household, to be his people. Every good Jew would have acknowledged Jacob as the father of Israel, the father of the 12 tribes. And Jesus here is inserting himself into the story. And he's saying, everybody must now recognize me as what Jacob, what Israel was pointing to. God is no longer revealing himself. In Bethel, or in the temple, but in Jesus himself. He will become, he uses that language, to abide in me, dwell in me. I will become the household. I will become the meeting place of the family of God. I'm the ladder. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he'll say. I'm the one that Israel was pointing to. I am the access point of God. Nathaniel, you liked my fig tree trick? And you will see God himself in his holy place through me the latter. But there's another interesting wordplay going on here. Remember Jacob, what did his name mean? Famously it was deceiver, heel grabber. And what did he just say about Nathaniel? He says, you are an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And I think that's intentional language. Remember Jacob has that moment, that key moment, that turning point in his life and he's wrestling with God and he has a revelation, he sees God as he is, and after that wrestling, he, and after he profoundly changed, God changes his name in lieu of that. And he says, you're no longer Jacob, the deceiver. He says, you are now what? Israel. And Israel means one who wrestles with, or one who sees God. And so we see him talking here to Nathan, saying, Nathan, you are an Israelite without deceit. That you are not acting as a Jacob. You are acting as an Israel, one who right now is seeing God in the flesh. This is incredible. And the blessing, he says, the blessing, the phrase that he uses, in whom there is no deceit, as a blessing that David speaks about in Psalm 32. Again, listen to the language mapped on here. Verse 2, how joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, that's sin, right? And in whose spirit there is no deceit. So who is the blessed one? The one in whom there is no deceit. Now, we know there's no human that has never told a lie, right? All have fallen short. We've broken that commandment. But what does it mean to, to have no deceit in you? He clarifies down in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not conceal my iniquity. I, and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin says to have no deceit in you is to confess freely who I am as a sinner and who the one I'm seeing is as Savior. But the, the tension point there is how can somebody who is full of iniquity, full of sin, be forgiven? That's not a just move by a God, right? He must punish all sin. He must keep a account of every wrongdoing. So, so how does the tension relieve? Well, it's only on the ladder where we see the ascending and the descending. And Jesus says... That happens on the Son of Man. Now this is one of Jesus' if not his most favorite title that he uses for himself. And what did we say that that word son of, that phrase means? We said it's likeness, right? So in a very real way, Jesus, when he says I'm the Son of Man, he's become flesh, right? It's God incarnate. So in many ways he said I'm human-like. I am a human myself now. But it also points to a deeper prophecy of the Son of Man. Uh, probably most pointedly from Daniel chapter seven. Daniel has this this, uh, vision. He says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, the father himself, and was escorted before him. And here's what the son of man is told. This is not just any mere human. Verse 14, he, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, every nation, every language, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This is no mere mortal, even though he will be human. This is the king, the eternal lord of lords. And again, Israel would have heard this And they're thinking in their present day, man, we got to beat up the Romans. So they're thinking King Leonidas. They're thinking Mel Gibson, right? There's going to be some form of political and physical freedom that's going to be brought to us here. Let's take the sword to Rome. Let's do this thing. But in John's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus, as we said, clarifying his true and better mission as the Son of Man. Because the Old Testament also addresses this King of Kings as the suffering servant. He would descend to earth on a ladder, but then continue to descend downward, Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death on a cross. Through that descension, he would be able to ascend back to his father's house. He he became a man, son of man, so that he could be a human that could die, and that through his death, he would be raised up, ascend to be crowned king of kings forever. And the good news, the gospel for us today is that he became the ladder through whom we could ascend with him to Bethel, to God's house, to be the eternal dynasty, the household of God. Jesus is not just sprinkles to make our life go better. He's not just genie to give us what we think we most want or need. He's not just aloe to take away all suffering. We see with the person of Jesus in John's gospel that following him means not following him around the cross, but through the cross. Not around suffering to glory, but right through it. And our call, just like Jesus, our rabbi himself, is to die to ourselves like Nathaniel. To be one in whom there is no deceit. That I'll freely confess I'm jacked up. I'm a sinner. I have a need for a ladder I cannot climb on my own. And to confess Jesus is the son of man. The Messiah. The risen rescuing king. And to see him by faith as what we just read says he really is. See one day, what Jesus promised here, you will see. One day when he comes back. We sang about it earlier. Everyone will see him as he truly is. But it's only for those who have believed before seeing will be permitted to ascend the ladder with him as God's household forever. So we come to our earthly show and tell that far ex- exceeds uh, grandma's gallstones. We've got to see him rightly, guys, to be able to savor him rightly, and from that to be able to show him rightly. Because listen, like, if I just send you out with the motive of guilt and shame, like, you need to be a better evangelist. There are people in your life going to hell that you need to tell about, right? That, that motive is not going to get us very far. Or even, like, the statistics of the lost, and those are real, and it's devastating. But that alone is not going to be our motive. The only motive that's going to last is going to be seeing Jesus himself and savoring him for who he truly is and wanting more than anything our friends, our family, our neighbors, the unreached around the world to know this Jesus that we see and that we savor. This is how the church of God is gonna be built, his household, the mission to be accomplished, that we see him by faith and we tell of him as his witness. So let's go from here this week, church, and let's show and tell the Messiah as we've seen him. Father God, we thank you for revealing the Son of Man, whom the angels ascend and descend on. The only access point we have to your heart as your new and better household. So, Father, I just pray in these next moments, because we all, man, just like Peter on the boat, Cephas, we take our eyes off of Jesus as we climb out onto the boat to follow you And we so easily, I so easily sink into the waves of desperately wanting the approval of people around me and putting my, my comfort as my ultimate and wanting control and power in the million ways that I take my eyes off Jesus every day. And so we just ask, Father, by your grace, right now in this moment, that you would put our eyes of faith back on him as we sing about him. The the lamb who is worthy. The only one that could open the scroll. The only one with the authority to usher us in to the kingdom of God forever and ever. That That is where life is found. As we see him, we would be compelled by his love to share him with the world around us. We pray these things in the name of the risen son of man. All God's people said.